Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out, and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Bill Hartman from BillHartmanPT.com and iFast. Bill is an individual who is extremely important to me. He is a mentor, friend, and someone who I have an immense amount of respect, admiration, and love for. My time with Bill, his wife Lisa, and of course their dog Paxson, and the entire IFAS and Intensive 2.0 family at Intensive 2.0 in September 2018 was one of the best experiences of my life so far, and one that I am forever grateful for to Bill and Lisa. And you can hear all about my experience at the Intensive 2.0 in episode 186, which is linked up in the show notes. And to find out more about Bill, be sure to head over to his website where it is linked up in the show notes. On this episode, Bill and I discussed a lot of topics. I asked Bill, what is optimal movement? I asked Bill about the trade-off of decreasing movement variability to increase sport specificity and potentially performance. Bill talks about his mentorship course, The Intensive. Bill shares with us his model for assessing and optimizing human movement and behavior. Bill discusses the concepts of loading and propulsion. I asked Bill about learning. I asked Bill about left procession. Bill discusses the importance of having some background knowledge in embryology. Bill discusses 
infrasternal angles and why they are important and very relevant. I asked Bill, how did he develop his model? We talk about Bill's book, All Gain, No Pain. I asked Bill, why does he love Batman? I asked Bill, what's next? I asked Bill, what is he currently studying? Bill shares with us why he decided to get braces. And finally, I asked Bill if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this was a phenomenal episode with Bill, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Bill, we are recording, my man. Thank you so much, so, so much for making time for me today. How are you? I am outstanding, but I will get better. <laughs> I like it. Of course you're going to get better. I mean, what, what, what could be better than two absolute nerds talking about anything that they want? Exactly, exactly. I feel like I should. I feel like I should be speaking with some form of accent. Every time I have a conversation with you, I I feel at a loss, like I am in deficit from the get go because you have just wonderful, wonderful accent. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate that. Um, so listen, not gonna be any need for an intro, really. To be honest, I mean, people listening to this are fully aware of who you are. Topics I'd love to get into today. Um, that I want to talk to you today. One, one that we kind of touched on while we were emailing was this concept of, listen, there is no bad way to move. There's just strategies. I, I really love your concept on that. And then also, I very much want you to talk about why you decided to run the intensive as well. Like, mm-hmm. what, what, what was the reason for that to come about? What's involved? Who's it for? I think the whole process behind it, to be honest, is fascinating. Like, even the way you have to apply for it, I, I really respect that about it. Uh, mm-hmm. We spoke about that at length when I was over last September in terms of, like, I, I love the integrity. I can't say that word right. Integrity about what you're trying to set up there. But uh, let's start off with those two two concepts anyway, or those, those two questions. So the first one is, you know, movement strategies. You know, if you want to get into, like, dynamic systems, just, uh, I suppose, basically what I'm asking is your, your current understanding of how to optimize the human species in terms of movement. Like, what is your model? And I know that this concept of, listen, there is no wrong or there is no necessarily 100% right. It's just, it's just what is appropriate in terms of strategy for an individual and a given moment. Right. So behavior, right. behavior and movement, I suppose, would be the first question. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it, that, that's a pretty broad scope question, yeah. obviously. Well, you can go wherever you want. With so it. I was just going to say, we'll go, we'll go wherever the conversation leads us. So, so feel free to just, you know, let's just have a conversation about it because – the last thing I ever want to do is lecture, and that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. Um, but the, the, just to start right off the bat, I, I don't like the term dysfunction. That, that's a machine-based uh, concept, and humans are not machines. We are complex dynamic systems, so we're, we're adaptable. We're self-organizing. We have emergent properties that, that are due to the the outputs that we are capable of so all of our subsystems work together to produce things that that are are just emergent they 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 arise from the system's interaction themselves so it's it's the the sum of the parts um are are lesser than the whole the whole represents something entirely different than than what the sum of its parts represent um so what we're looking at then when we're looking at any kind of movement, so we can talk about anything is we have a a system that is trying to manage an outcome or an intent based on the forces that it 
it's exposed to and based on the forces that it produces itself. And so what we then see is the outcome, which is a strategy. So we have traditionally thought of as, as degrees of freedom, which I, which I would challenge that. I think that's, that falls back on some of our Euclidean geometric principles that we use to calculate forces and, and positions and such. And so if you look at the, I think their current representation is you have 244 degrees of freedom, which I think we've got a hell of a lot more than that. But, but how we organize that system for the outcome could be any number of different ways and still have a successful outcome. And even if we have uh, an imposed limitation on the system, so we could say an injury or a change in a tissue or a muscle tear or a sprain, we can still accomplish a successful outcome in any number of different strategies. And I think that's what we're looking at more than anything else when we're talking about movement. And so I don't think that there's one way to do anything correctly. I, I, all you got to do is look at any particular sport and look at the subtleties of the differences in way two people might accomplish uh, a task. So if I look at I, I, baseball always comes to mind because the pitchers come in different shapes and sizes and yet they can still produce any number uh, of different ways to throw a baseball 95 miles an hour. And, it, you know, you look at his name's Tim Linscombe is a pitcher for the San Francisco uh, uh, Giants and he's 5'11 and then you look at another guy that's six foot five, and they can both produce a very very similar outcome but they have to do it in different ways because their constraints are a little bit different and so then that goes back to the system itself what are the constraints of the system and then that's going to produce a specific outcome so we can't pigeonhole people into absolutes there might be attractors within a, a certain specific task like swinging a baseball bat or kicking a soccer ball that that are trainable but then there's the individuality of, of that system that's going to rely on its own constraints as to how to accomplish a task so that's why i don't really like to to blame people for a dysfunctional movement because i don't think that that, that really exists i think that the system is using what it's capable of doing at that moment to achieve a specific task via a strategy. And then what we want to be able to do is to provide them with the greatest number of options and then let the system figure out the answer. Just off the back of that then, just even just what you said, literally just said there in your last sentence, you know, kind of given the, the system more options, would you still want to give the system more options if the system actually needs to specialize in one particular area? So like, you know, a power lifter or mm -hmm. a 100 meter sprinter. Mm -hmm. like, um, and this kind of gets a little bit into the conversation of sport versus health that sure. maybe to be the, maybe to be the best, not even maybe, but in certain circumstances to be the best in one particular specific domain, like again, powerlifting, you actually are going to have to make trade-offs and sacrifices in health and in just in variability and variability. I mean like in every way in variability in your physiological health, your biomechanical health, you know, um, that you, you, know, you need to literally just narrow down and specialize to be the best in a certain area. And, and just before I let you answer there, I think 
the issue is that there is some athletes who actually don't realize the trade-off they're making and if they did they mightn't actually make that trade-off but there are other athletes who are fully aware of oh yeah i know this is not good for my health but i don't care i want to be a beast while i'm still here on this planet and then there's no there's no judgment to that but what's your take then on maybe this kind of sport versus health and is there actually times where we don't want to add more variability to the system in for a sporting context or you know sort of a a chance of winning a major title kind of thing Right. I, I, I love to use the example of the 100-meter sprinter because um, the, the atmosphere is radically different from, say, a field athlete. So a field athlete has a tremendous number of demands in regards to directional changes, um, fluctuations in, in how energy is produced, um, awareness, strategies, tactics, etc. So I have this overwhelming number of influences in, in, in the outcome. And to have the adaptability to make those changes, I need to have a broad scope of, of variability in regards to my, my abilities to move, right? And, but there's energetic demands that are associated with this. So even though I have soccer guys that are really, really fast, they're not going to be as fast as the 100-meter sprinter because they do have to have this broad scope of adaptability. So, so if I dilute any one element of somebody's physiology to allow them to have a broad spectrum of adaptability, then I have to lower the level of performance of one of those, those qualities. So it would be speed, it would be strength, it would be power, whatever you want to call it. With a 100-meter sprinter, I live in one of the most predictable atmospheres of all time. They paint little white lines on the ground so I know exactly where to run. There's no surprises, there's no defense. Um, the, the thing that I have to be able to manage then is to propel myself in that straight line as, a, as, as uh, competently as possible with maximum energy and effort going in a singular direction. And in that case, it might behoove me to actually reduce my ability to move in other directions because if I have to hold myself in a straight line, that is increased energy demand that I have to pull away from my linear speed, if you will. And so in the case of a comparison between, say, a soccer player and the sprinter, I might want my soccer player to have a lot of hip mobility to allow him to look the center of gravity change direction, whereas with my sprinter, I know exactly what he's going to need to do. I don't need to change directions. In fact, every time I do change directions within my lane, I have, I have um, expended unnecessary energy that takes away from speed so now maybe he only needs 15 degrees of hip rotation or whatever to, to accomplish his task and now he can produce more energy in a straight line same thing with a power lifter a power lifter has to stay in a very specific groove to produce the, the the maximum output to lift a weight and so maybe i don't want normal hip rotation in a power lifter right but then the sacrifice is under under all circumstances of reduced variability is I'm going to put load and stress on very specific areas over and over and over again. And there are consequences to that. And just as long as you understand that, then I am very cool with that. I work with power lifters that come in and I tell them the same story. And then when they come in in pain, I say, look, we're going to have to add back some variability until you can recoup your health. And then we can start to, to try to, you know, uh, accomplish the previous task in maybe a little bit more effective way, hanging on to just enough variability to keep you healthy. Um, if we look at the, like a difference between a rehab situation and a performance situation, so they're, we're on a continuum, basically. We're at, at the rehab end, at the absolute end of rehab, 
uh, end of this, the continuum, I need to maximize variability. Now with my scope of practice, my proxy measure for variability of the entire system is movement. But I have no idea when somebody walks into my, my purple room um, as to what system, what subsystem within the system is most impacting their, their movement-based outcome. So what I have to do then is I have to try to maximize the amount of variability in the hopes that by doing so, the system that is most effective gains its adaptability so we can recoup health. And that is represented by the increases in, in range of motion, the increased mobility, their, their increased comfort with movement. That's, that's my proxy measure. So if I was an immunologist, I would think differently, but, but because I'm a, I'm a physical therapist and, and a strength and conditioning person, then, then that's how I have to think. As I return them back to their, their performance-related activities, so we talk about return to play processes and such, I fully expect to have a reduction in variability, but I'm monitoring them along the way to determine like, okay, so as I see a reduction in this movement quality that enhances your performance, am I compromising the health again? And so then I have to monitor and determine, okay, we need to work to maintain this quality as we try to gain somewhere else. So there's a trade-off as you move towards performance where variability is reduced intentionally to produce a performance-related outcome. So if I want to jump higher, again, I might have to steal some hip mobility. I might have to um, reduce the, the trunk's ability to bend and, and turn, right? But there's always those trade-offs when we're talking about performance. You always have to have that discussion in, in regards to health. It's like, and everybody asks me the same question. Well, can I just, you know, work on this and raise my performance at the same time? Maybe, right? So we look at, you know, the, the, the traditional normal curve and at one end we're going to, or at two ends, we're going to have outliers, one favorable, one unfavorable. And those might be the people that, that maintain full variability and reach this high level of performance. But because of your personal constraints as a, as a complex adaptive system, you might need to give up something to squat 700 pounds. Whereas somebody else might not have to just because of their constraints. And we have to respect that. So now we're back to the conversation of n equals one. So like what what do you have to do to accomplish this task? And that's that's the difference between this this broad spectrum variability concept and then the specificity. There's a, there's always going to be a sacrifice. The more specific I get, I just have to make the right decisions and and then understand the consequences. Yeah, I suppose when it comes then to um you know, athletic preparation, that's really what the GPP phase is sort of for, isn't it? You know, to kind of, that, that we, we can get away from specificity for a while, maybe reopen up that bandwidth of variability again to kind of maybe just, you know, build, build up that threshold a little bit so that, again, we have enough, just enough variability from a health perspective that will support the performance when we got to go back to being very specific again and loading similar structures and tissues and whatnot. Right. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it also, I heard Pat, Dav Pat, our good friend Pat Davidson, when he was speaking with Jim Lard, um, you know, Jim brought up a good good sort of um, point as well that, like, they were kind of speaking about movement variability, but Jim was like, you know, health really is variability in all systems, you know, like metabolic variability or what's called metabolic flexibility to be able to switch from carbs and fats and, you know, just, just being more adaptable and variable. We all know from a health standpoint that, that's kind of where we want to be. The most adaptable organism is the one that's generally going to survive 
the best right. or the greatest in, in any type of environment. I mean, that's kind of why humans, one of the reasons why we are top of the animal kingdom is that we can live in all the environments and all the, and nearly every, I was going to say every corner of the globe, but sure, that's a bit of an right. oxymoron, but you get what I mean. But uh, yeah. if we do need to clamp down and be specific, we just got to be aware that there is trade-offs then with health. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the intensive, I think it's hey, on, is, yeah. it, is it on, is it on 5.0 now? Is it on the fifth, fifth or? Uh, yeah. Intensive, intensive five is next month, April. Wow. April. So, um, I actually, like while I was at the second intensive, I actually never really got to ask you, like, like when was the sort of the light bulb moment? You know, I, read, I actually read something very funny the other day. You know the way like everyone thinks like the light bulb's the idea and it goes bing. And it's yeah. like, what's ironic is it took so long for that fucking thing to be invented. Like, it, <laughs> you know what I mean? It took, it took a thousand goals. So like every, everyone, everyone thinks that like Edison just like tried once and like bing. It's right, like, oh, no, right. No, no. Like, like ten, ten thousand different ways to not invent a light bulb. Yeah, that's a little, he, yeah. he half blinded himself doing the fucking thing. But uh, yeah, w- when was that moment though? We were like, right, that's it. That I, I, this, I'm, I'm about to do this, and this is the way it's going to be, and, and this is the way I foresee it because it, it really is one of a kind. Like in terms of continual education, I mean, there's nothing that I've ever come across or attended or participated in that came close to it and matching the whole experience so just bring us through the whole it's it's nice of you to say that it's nice of you to say that um well a a couple of things i i think that uh um the the way that continuing education is presented so so i could lay out the model for you right okay so here's what you're going to do you're going to give me a couple thousand dollars we're going to spend two days in a big room full of like a hundred and plus people um there's going to be a lecture there's going to be a manual and there's going to be a powerpoint presentation and what you're going to get, you're going to get a bunch of nuggets and you're going to get some process and you're going to get a bunch of things in for 20 of those hundred people. It will be impactful for five people. It's going to be really life changing and meaningful. And for the rest, it's going to be, Oh, I got my continuing education credits and I'm going to try to do this thing on Monday. It's not going to work very well because I don't have any depth of understanding. And then there's no ongoing process afterwards. So if you take all that and then you say, well, what is the best educational experience that, that I could possibly put together? It's to try to try. I, I, I try to take every possible transaction off the table to eliminate an expectation of what you're supposed to have. Right. So the very first intensive was free. Um, and the reason I did that is because I didn't want to charge anybody first and foremost. And then secondly, I just didn't know if I had a viable, useful product. And, and so I just brought in, what? What are you shaking your head for? Shut up. You, you didn't think that your information was worth charging for? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, because it, it, think about it. Think about what you were exposed to during, during the whole process and then how, how difficult it was to consume parts of it and then to, to have the enlightenment on day two when you expressed that, that yeah. I mean, you just had like a, like you had the light bulb moment, if you will. Um, but, but point being is, is, is that I, I needed to make sure that it was a viable product. So, so I, again, I wanted to take the transaction off the table, no expectations whatsoever. Um, and then I, I, I needed it to, to be the right people in the room. So instead of letting anyone in and then turning this into a financially driven process. So, so I, my goal is not, I, I, I could probably get, 20 people in the room if I wanted to. I could probably charge more if I wanted to. That's not the point. It's not the point at all. 
The point is, is, is to actually create a useful situation that is meaningful to, to someone else that, that allows them to actually get better in, in, a, in a reasonably short period of time and then to continue this process afterwards, which is why we have the, the big base camp group that, that goes on after the fact. The, ex so, the, the extensive. The, yeah, that's what everybody's kind of calling it. It's kind of funny. Uh, but, but, uh, but, it, but it is, and the reason I call it the intensive is because it is a lot of information in, in, in roughly three days. So we start, we start on Thursday night. We finish on a, on a, on a Sunday. Um, which, which I just want to say is absolute genius. So for the people that are listening, they go, they start on a Thursday night. Think about this, right? So most seminars you go to, you end up there, half a registration, everyone's like half slept, you know, because it's in a hotel or somewhere, you know, they're away from home and there's that like first bad night of sleep type thing that Matthew Walker talks about because you're in, you saying the reason for that is half your brain is asleep because you're half so you kind of awake because you're in, you're subconsciously, you know, you're not in a, in, in your environment. So you don't, you usually don't get great sleep. So everyone's not in a great mood from the get go. And as you said, they're kind of in this stuffy room or hotel and, and so like, that's the usual thing, like everyone's on caffeine everywhere. Whereas like what I thought was genius, and I don't know if you intentionally, I don't know if this, this was your intention, but like to me, it's genius. You're like, no, no, this is how it's going to start. We're going to meet in the evening for dinner. And it's like, you know what I mean? Everyone sits down at dinner and like, it's like none of it's about like, okay, this is the layout for the day. This is the course. It's all like, you know, people having their meals and just chatting and having the banter. And it's like, you already like get this like, a brotherhood and also because Michelle was there, sisterhood relationship already gone from the get-go. Like even like when I met Big Anthony, we met Big Anthony uh, who was on our course. Um, like even just, I never met him before, but straight away I was like, I, I don't know if you remember, but when we got back to IFAS even, I was like, I don't even know you, but I like you. Yeah. Because he yeah. was just, because we'd already connected a little bit over dinner and it was just, I think just starting with an evening dinner, like the, the day before, it was just genius. I thought it was just really genius. Well, so so the thing you the thing that you notice that that I notice the most is the the level of interactivity increases progressively over the over the the weekend, right? So the whole the whole point was to allow everyone to get comfortable and have a rapport with everyone else. So so the, the way that process starts is with an application process because I don't want just anybody that, that's interested in learning something to come in. It, it, it's a matter of having somebody at a level already that, that is, is capable of accepting and processing some of this new information. And, and so I just have to be sure of that. So, so I'll get anywhere from, I think that I've had, and again, I've only left the, the, the application process open for like a week at a time kind of thing. And I get like between 24 and 32 applications. Um, and, and, but of those, then only eight people get to come. And, and that's hard because there's some really, really good applications. There's people that have, that have applied three and four times already, and they're just not quite there yet. And I want them to keep trying. And so, so I encourage people to do that. But, but so you get the right people in the room and then you get them comfortable with each other because you go to a big course and getting people to, to question the material or offer up a, an opinion um, is very difficult in a very large group of people because uncomfortable for people to, to hang their butt out there and say, I think this. Whereas we have a group of people that have established rapport 
and are comfortable speaking to each other and then offering up information. So, so they're not afraid to ask the stupid question that they would perceive as a stupid question. Um, and so that helps, but that, and, and you were there, so you understand that it just helps drive the conversation and drives the information. And so, so that right there changes the dynamic of the whole process. And, and that was the, the big issue was I need to have something useful. I had, need to have something that's impactful and I need something that's going to, to allow people to, to, uh, expand, um, it's a lot of new information, I think, in most cases. I don't think people have been exposed to some of this stuff that is very impactful in regards to establishing a model. And that's the whole premise behind the weekend is, is this is the model that is most coherent with what our observations are. And uh, so that, that's it, kind of it in a nutshell. Um, it, it, it was born out of frustration on my end of just going to continuing education courses and, and just being left um, kind of hanging a little bit in regards to, that eh, it was okay. I mean, it used to be like, you used to say things like, you know, if, if you take one good thing away from a course, then it's worth your financial investment. And, and I don't think that's the case anymore. I think we have to be better than that. Cause, yeah, cause continuing it turned into a, to a, a financially driven process. Yeah. That, to be honest, that used to drive me nuts when people say, Oh, you know, if you take one thing out of that, it was worth the investment. Or even if you learned nothing, I just reaffirmed what you already do. It was just like something just deep inside. I was like, that's just bullshit. Yeah. Like, it's, you just know, not you... it's not enough anymore. It's no. just not enough. And, and, and especially as we evolve as practitioners and, and the, the education needs to evolve with us, right? We need to, we need to gain depth. And, and what we have are a bunch of, of, of systems that people have developed in some way, shape or form that may provide some element of access to our system, but they're incomplete, they're incoherent. And so, so my goal is to provide a model that I don't care what tool you use, it is, it is consistent and coherent with the model. So I can show you a joint mobilization as a physical therapist that is absolutely coherent with this model that I'm presenting. I, if you're a dry needler, I can show you why dry needling might work in this case and then might not work in this case. If you're a strength and conditioning coach, I can show you why you want to modify this exercise to produce this outcome, uh, depending on what your intent is. And it's very, very consistent with the model. Mm. Without divulging too much information, because... <clears throat> We can talk about anything you want. I, I will talk about anything you want. You ask me any question and I will answer <laughs> to the best of my ability. I can't promise that I'm absolutely right, but I will do my best. I promise. Who, who killed JFK? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Uh, a lot of speculation, a lot of speculation. Yeah. Uh, no, no, seriously. Um, like, cause you've, you've, you've said the word model numerous times down there is going to be people mm -hmm. go, oh, what is the model? Tell me, God damn it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in fairness to really grasp the model, you just got to get accepted to the intensive, to be honest. Well, yeah. But, 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 but I, uh, I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. But it, it, how much, how much can you discuss the model or try and get it across? I'll talk about anything you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I'll talk about anything you want. Go, we'll go anywhere. That's, I'm here that's, that, that's my question. So what, what is your model? What is it? Okay, so we live in a physical world. I have a limited, I have a limited perspective in regards to what I can and cannot measure. 
And so, so I have to live within this, this uh, uh, constraint. And so I have to use my observations as, as the proxy for, for what my intent is. So as I'm measuring movement, what does that movement mean? And then how is it produced? And so, so let's go, uh, it, it, here's what, it, what everybody should do is they should go to, to watch um, uh, Gerald Pollack has a uh, YouTube presentation on water, which is like just strange and bizarre and wonderful and magical and, and fabulous. So, so in my mind, Gerald Pollack is the Einstein of, of all these cellular processes. And, and, you know, I, Gordon uh, Lang is probably the, is it Gordon Lang? Gil Gilbert, Gilbert Lang. Gilbert Lang. Thank you. Thank you. I got a book right over here. I think you think I know that. Yeah. Like, so, so you look at, at, at him and he's probably more Einsteinian than anybody else, but Gerald Pollack actually looks like Einstein. And, and, and um, Gilbert is, is very old now and probably doesn't do YouTube, YouTube videos, but, but um, there's a statement that he makes very early on in, the, in this, in this process. And, and uh, really simply put, um, you're, you're two thirds water by weight, but by molecule, you're 99% water. Mm. And if that's the case, then every element of human behavior has to be based on that, that concept. If I am 99% water, then every thought, every cellular process, every movement based process has to be based on that, based on fluid mechanics. And so that's what it is. It's very simple. It's physics. Mm -hmm. We have physics within our body. We have physics that we're exposed to and we have to manage both the internal and the external forces. And in doing so, there are certain things that have to happen for us to walk on two legs. People will say, well, well, walking is very, very easy for humans. Well, I got news for you. It's not that easy first and foremost. And um, I think bonobos can can become bipedal, but humans are basically the only animals that are. Um, and then there's that one weird gorilla that, if you watch on YouTube, that he walks like a like a human. That's pretty bizarre. But but in general, we're the only animals on the planet that can, that can can become bipedal. And uh, and so with with that understanding, then it's like okay, what forces allow that to happen? that other animals can't manage. And then now we have all of our internal processes that we have to be able to determine and then what those are. And so we have process, we have, we have forces inside our body that are happening all the time that actually enhance our ability to move. But just like uh, a, a superhero with a superpower, you can't control. If we don't manage those, they can knock us off our feet too. And so now you know why they give walkers to old folks in nursing homes because they lose their ability to manage these internal forces and then that's why they lose their balance. Um, so if, if we can understand the internal and external forces better, then we understand how movement arises. And if we understand how movement arises, then we understand what strategy someone might be using to produce an outcome. And if that is an undesired outcome or the the process of evolving that movement is undesired then we know how to influence it in a favorable way based on whatever opinions we might have about what is considered um suboptimal if you will i, I know one sort of one area of the model that that is it's sort of tough 
to not conceptualize, but I suppose one question that kind of kept coming up was how can we assess or measure this? And the the sort of the sort of you know kind of answer you were kind of giving back or the or the sense I got was that you looked at the individual and you let their system tell you what needed to be focused on. So I remember the example with Jay when we were in the gym and just for whatever reason that left hip and half kneeling was giving you the information you needed in terms of where you thought you needed to go to, to open up some variability in, within his movement uh, strategy and model. And I think that that concept is very scary to people who like a consistent, this is my assessment, I use it, everyone type mindset because it's safe and secure. So maybe mm-hmm. can, you, can you maybe like speak about, you know, listen, we got to step into the kind of unknown here and the uncertainty within the realms of, there still is a model, like the models you said is physics. Like it, right. Right. It's, totally, it's totally physical because I, and we can talk about neurology and we can talk about the brain influences. And we can talk about emotions and all those things. And I think they're very interesting conversations, but all due respect, I can't measure that in the gym. Yeah. Yeah. I can't measure it. And, and so if I can't measure it, I'm not going to worry about it right now. Exactly. Um, you know, um, a, a couple of things that, that, that we can probably throw out as useful in this conversation my ability to eccentrically orient the, the, the contractile tissue. So if I can eccentrically orient those tissues, that allows me to move. Yeah. If I have to concentrically orient, that is, that is a movement restriction. And depending on what the outcome, the desired outcome is, my ability to manipulate that is what is representative of my ability to achieve the desired goal. And so if I have people that cannot, cannot concentric or eccentrically orient in under certain circumstances, then I need to provide an influence that allows them to do so. And so this might be something as simple as learning how to inhale or how to position a, a hip under certain circumstances in a, in a, a lunge, mm. you know, and, and, capture a position that allows those contractile tissues to eccentrically orient and then I get the the allowance of movement but this all comes back to motor learning then as to okay how am I managing these forces internally and externally that I can't do this in any other way than to concentrically orient say a certain hip muscle or something that will restrict that movement so now I have to create an environment within which you are capable of eccentrically oriented. And then that's how I know what exercise to choose. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's what you're, you're looking at. So when we're looking at just put something in a half kneeling and if they can't assume or manipulate that position sufficiently, then you know, you have something that, that is sort of in the way, if you will, which would typically be some form of concentric orientation that is, that is restricting that movement. So now I change your body position and now you do have access to that movement and then it becomes a process of graded exposure, right? Graded, graded exercise to allow the system to learn how to control the internal and external forces and then that allows me to access that movement. Talk to me about loading versus propulsion you only have you only have two ways that you can go you can go forwards and you can go backwards right and and so so the ability to load the system so that's it so you you remember my four my four principles of of force do you remember those refresh my mind please accept force produce force i remember Remember yeah i remember accept uh, who told you that (laughs) 
I prefer the word accept. And you were like, hmm. Yeah, that was good. That was, hey, that's why you were there. Uh, so accept force, produce force, produce force quickly, produce force quickly, repeatedly. So that's performance, right? Yeah. Um, actually, it's, if you can look at the continuum from, from rehab to performance, the accept force aspect of it tends to be at that rehab side of the continuum because that's what most people cannot do. And if they're constantly in this state of, of propulsion, right, trying to produce force first without the ability to accept force, then the system becomes very, very rigid and incapable of distributing load. And so, so uh, accept force goes first. And that is what I refer to as, as loading. So I'm loading the system. I'm accepting force into the system that is eccentric orientation, that is higher variability, that is the ability to, to inhale without a compensatory strategy, right? And so that is step one under most circumstances. And so, so that would be a loading concept. The opposing end of that, of that spectrum then becomes force production. So that is more concentric orientation, that is more of an exhalation-based strategy, and that is a much more rigid uh, presentation of movement. So if you just looked at a sprinter, Right. So if I get into the blocks as a sprinter, I need to be able to assume a loaded position to even assume my start position. But as the as the gun fires, I need to be able to quickly move from that loaded position to a propulsive position. So that would be a really good representation of the two extremes where so if uh, we could also look at it from a jumping perspective. So my ability as an athlete to eccentrically orient, load the system represents my ability to, to load a counter movement jump. So as you, as you lower your center of gravity into a counter movement jump, that is a, the, the loaded position. Some people cannot load or they load too much. And so those are the people that, that don't get off the ground very high and the people that can, that can load and redirect from a loaded position to a propulsive position where I'm producing force, not accepting force, allows me to get off the ground. So those are the, in a nutshell, but there are, but there are, there are different aspects to each of those um, that, that I would offer that, that need to be identified. And, that, and that's where your measurements come in to, to identify, okay, can this person load or can they propel? Where would the isometric component fall in there? What, what is an isometric Robbie? What is an isometric? Mm -hmm. Well, ISO means same. Yes. So when is anything the same? Never really, if you break it down to the subatomical level. Yeah. So it doesn't matter to me. Oh, very good. Okay. It, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Right? Can I measure it? You hear that, Caldeets? Fuck your triphasic. No, don't say that. <laughs> I'm already joking. I'm already joking. That's not my point. That's not my point. That's He's like, point. I know. There's a, term. There's, a, there's a point of turnaround that, that has to occur, right? But, but again, it's like, it, I can't measure that that element very well. Yeah, there's, yeah. Not a, there's not a representation of it um, in my proxy measures, so I, I just don't worry about it. It, it. It's not that I don't try to understand it. I know. It's just that it's just not useful for me to spend a lot of time on that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Cal, if you are, if you are listening, which you probably aren't, I'm just joking. Um, learning's a big thing with you. Like learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. And which, where is it? Where have I got it? Oh, here. Hold on. I'll show you. Yeah, make it sick. Yeah. There you go. 
I actually I only just started to. It's funny because there's a there's a book make uh, make it stick, and then there's and then there's made to stick. And yes, so make it stick is how to learn, but made to stick is chipping down heat. So we, is it make to stick? Is it make it stick or made to stick? Is one you like? Make it stick. M A K E. So that's make the one it I was thinking. But uh, yeah, I want to go in the direction of learning because I know that's been a big area of interest to you. Like I know motor learning's always been a big interest to yours, but in terms of just like how we learn, how we retain information, you know, uh, a big thing I took away from the time I spent with you last September when I was studying my anatomy physiology, you were like, you got to give a context. Yep. You got to give a context so it's, it stays in, you know, it, it stays in the brain. You know, you can just, and I, even this morning I was listening to a podcast with a woman called Barbara Oakley on, on Danny Lennon's podcast. And Barbara Oakley has like apparently one of the biggest online courses. It's, it's on Coursera. It's called the Learning How to Learn course. Mm-hmm. And she was just saying that she's like, if you can make an analogy to things and, and stories, it just right. helps to retain information. It just brought me right. up in terms of giving content. Right. Yeah. You also, uh, before I let you speak there, you also spoke about this with Doug Katijan, like, you know, so he was kind of thinking, he, his question to you at the time was like, how do you think we can make information at the university level, like sort of have more context? And mm-hmm. you, in fairness, you were like, listen, the human body has so many systems and we all know that's a holistic system, but try and learn all that in one go. Good luck to you. We have to break it down. But then when we're putting it back together, mm-hmm. it's about giving context in certain situations. So I think one example you gave on the podcast of Doug was like, well, why is the gas rock got two heads? Why do you think it's designed that way? And then mm-hmm. if you give like a context around that to like a student, they go, oh, and they're more likely to retain it. So right. my question to you is like, talk to me about learning. Like what does learning mean to you? What's the process? How do you now see it? How do you go about it? Like how has how that sort of journey ch- changed for you? Like how have you, how's your, your learning process changed over the years? Well, I mean, it used to be just the same way that everybody else tried to do it, which was, you know, repetition change. and, repetition and rote memorization, right? It's like just try to jam it into your head and, and just repeat, 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 reread, reread, reread. And then um, you start to evolve, uh, uh, again, the strategy as to, okay, what is the best way for me to learn? So, so our brains like pictures and images and stories. And so that's what makes information meaningful short of some form of emotionally driven memory. So uh, if you were in a car accident, you probably remember all the details of a car accident because again, there, and you, all you do is read some Sapolsky and, and you'll kind of understand that, that process and why you tend to retain that memory more strongly than others. But when we're trying to learn new information, everything that you learn is based on what you have previously experienced and learned. So there has to be an association with that. And so what we tend to, to refer to is meeting people with their story. Um, if I'm trying to educate a patient on a concept or if I'm trying to teach a student a concept, I try to make a reference to something that they are already familiar with. And, and we need to do that as we're trying to learn ourselves. We have to try to make some sort, some form of association. We try to create an image or, or a picture. If you look at anybody that, like the, the world memory champions, if you read some of their, their stuff, they all use the same situation. They all create a, a, a picture, an image, or a context with which they, they memorize. So if, if they're trying to memorize a, uh, a playing card sequence, so, so they'll, they'll, they'll memorize the order of all 52 cards, but what they do is they, is they walk through their house, which they're very familiar with, and then each area of the house 
is associated with one card. And then as they walk through, they, they remember where the cards are. And so again, there has to be that association. So the analogy um, and the, the context with which, in, with which you, you are remembering or trying to remember something is, is of the utmost importance. The, the way that I talk to um, the schools that I get to talk to, when they ask, they ask this question, it's like, what can we do better as, a, as a, an, an educator to help our students? And I said, I said, stop teaching them gross anatomy, you know, first semester. Because what they do is they put a, <clears throat> they put a cadaver on a slab, and then the students have to, have to learn by rote memorization, rather than standing somebody up and saying, so under these circumstances, here's the mechanism with which this movement is produced then go into the lab and say, here's where that stuff is. And now you can see the associations and now they, now it's meaningful to them. Now the anatomy actually means something versus this is a gastroc, this is the soleus, this is attachment, this is what it does, this is this nerve, this is that nerve. And, and by creating a, a, a context first, now that information becomes meaningful and useful. Now there's some emotion attached to it where, where we can now become fascinated by how this movement actually arises. And, and that's much more impactful and much more meaningful. So I spent a lot of time with my, with my Padawans in the Purple Room um, creating these contextual elements. And th then the takeaway becomes, wow, that's much more interesting than looking at you know, the cadaver on the slab and just picking out parts. So a, a, a question though that actually came to my mind when I was thinking about this, it was only just the other day when I was walking in the park, which is usually where I get a lot of my thoughts that and in between sets of heavy deadlifts, heavy, relative, but is so I, I fully appreciate this concept of, you know, using a frame of reference to, to learn something new. But then the question came into mind. The question that came into my mind was, how do we learn the original frame of reference? Because we, we, we had to, if we kept peeling back and back and back, we started with a blank slate somewhere. Right. So that kind of came into my head. So I was like, how do we initially learn our, our initial information that then we use to, as a frame of reference for all other learning? So there still must be some other mechanisms that we but can we, But we do have experiences. And so then that would a little bit of conversation yeah 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 I was, right. I, was, I was just i was just wondering too you know it just kind of it was a bit more of like a if you're like a mind fuck type question you know because well, yeah and you know, like where, where does it start and, and so you know if you were a, a three-month-old baby it's like okay what is your frame of reference well my frame of reference is what the heck is that thing sits in front of me and it's like oh that's my hand yeah right? and so now i get to i get to play and i get to experiment yeah. Right? And so, so, so that creates a, a framework of, of, of context as well. So just take a, take a patient that, that has very, very poor movement experience. So they never played a sport in school. They sit behind a desk, they're 40 years old, and they have, they have a, 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 a pain-related issue. I actually have to create a context for them. I have to create a sensation for them. And I say, do you feel that? And then they say, yes, I do. I say, well, remember that sensation because we're going to keep using that sensation over and over again. Mm. So I can create, I can create that framework. I can create that story. So now that, that sensation that they feel is now meaningful to them. So they're seeking it out now. Mm -hmm. So every time that they do something, I have a frame of reference that I can go back to and say, do you feel that? And so this, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the, the internal versus external cueing concepts and, and things that, that get, you know, everybody 
dives into a camp of some sort, right? And they say, oh, external cues are infinitely better. Well, they are under certain circumstances, but if I don't have a vocabulary of movement, I got news for you. You need an internal representation first, and then you can create the external framework. Because if I'm trying to accomplish a movement task and I have no idea what you're talking about, if I, if I, don't, if I don't speak American like you, right? Then there's, there's a disc. There's a, well, you actually do. You speak quite, quite good American, but, but, uh, uh, but I, I have to create that, that, that context for you. And so again, it just becomes a story. It becomes a picture. It becomes something that, that, that we can make a reference to. And, and so that's a, a big part of learning under those circumstances as, as to where this all begins. Also to, uh, try and use external cues in your bodybuilding. You know, in, internal cues are inherently much, they've actually shown that, they've actually like, that's actually one of the evidence that, that external cues are, are, are better is that they show the worst, like a worse uh, muscle brain connection with bodybuilders. Like they were like, when they're doing bicep curls, they were like, yeah, external cues were worse. Internal cues were better for bicep curls. I was like, yeah, because they're all about like feeling the muscle. So again, it's context. It depends on what you're trying to. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, again, we, we go back to the very beginning of, of movement. It's like, the, it's not a right or a wrong. It's, it's okay. What is the context? And then what is the strategy that is, that is ideal for this situation? Can you talk about left procession? Sure, sure, absolutely. That's, so yeah. I, suppose, I suppose, like, what is, like, you know, when people hear that, they're just going kind of like, what, what are you talking about? What is that? Because, again, well, you, yeah. you, 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 first time I heard about it was, was an issue from you. And then when I, when I learned about it in terms of the bond, I was like, wow, this, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Fun. Well, it, it, again, we're, we're just going back to the concept of internal versus external forces, mm. right? So, so uh, we have movement that occurs inside of our bodies. So you have mass, you have volume, and that volume shifts. So right? and when we're talking about mass and volume, we're literally talking about the organ and the movements of the organ systems. Yeah, that. so you got a gut full of water, basically, off, right? So, yeah. so we have, yeah, we have internal organs that slosh all over the place, right? Slosh. They do, they, they do. do. They do. <clears throat> so they have, they have this, this friction. I mean, you don't even feel them most of the time until you have like a big meal, like a Robbie Bork style meal. Mm -hmm. right? um, but, but no, they're, they're, they're in a constant state of, of motion. They enhance our ability to move quickly or slowly, or they dampen forces, they produce forces. And, and so this is just part of this internal management strategy that I was talking about before. And so as the gut slosh around from side to side, if I, if I'm, if I'm running a five ten five test right and and i'm changing direction part of the management process for your ability to change direction is how well you manage these guts moving around from side to side because they produce a tremendous amount of momentum mm -hmm. and so if i don't control that momentum i have to create an external strategy so so in my in my symmetrical movement system that we all see on the outside i have to be able to manage those forces first so so it, it is it is sort of a a, a traditional concept to look at right-handed and, and left-handed pitchers a little bit differently. Left-handed pitchers tend to throw a few miles per hour slower than right-handed pitchers because the internal forces um, have, have a bias that the left-handers have to throw against, whereas with right-handers, it enhances their ability to, to throw. And so we just have to, to appreciate where those forces are, what direction they actually move under which circumstances, 
And then once we understand that, now our external movement strategies are better or, or easier to explain. And then what do I need to do to manage those forces? And now we're back to exercise selection based on what movement strategy you demonstrate to me. So if I see people that have limited shoulder range of motion or limited hip range of motion, the first thing I need you to, to be able to do is to manage your internal forces. And then we can start to superimpose gravity on top of that. Right. And then, then we're back to graded exposures. And so again, everybody's doing this stuff, but I think to, to, to understand the model a little bit more effectively in regards to the, the physics that are actually involved makes a huge difference in it. I don't want to say it simplifies things, but at least it provides an element of direction to maybe make a better intervention versus some form of generalized uh, approach and then hope for the best. Because I think we can be a lot more specific with, with our exercise selection once we understand what these forces are. Speak to me about the importance of embryology in, in terms of its effect. Like, no, like knowing about embryology, the Burton process, the pressures that actually go through, you know, the skull when we're being born and like how that could potentially be a, a major factor in our movement strategies later on in life. Well, the, so the way I was expressed is you have to kind of know where you came from, Yeah, you know? And, and so when we're talking about a complex adaptive system, there are, there are different types of constraints. So there are structural constraints and then there are functional constraints and the structural constraints are the relatively permanent um, elements that are either slow changing or unchanging in regards to when we're talking about movement. And, and so if I understand how the structure evolved, then it immediately predisposes that structure to, to what it is capable of doing. And so as I look at how the embryo develops, it immediately points me towards, okay, so if, if this evolved in, in this way, then it can only do these things, right? And as long as I understand what these things are, so if you look at the axial skeleton, so the axial skeleton press and elongate and twist and all that kind of thing, but it does so based on very specific constraints that, that were established um, in, in this embryological evolution. And so that lets me know what is capable of doing. And then as I observe the system through movement, whether I'm measuring it or eyeballing it or whatever, it allows me to determine, okay, here's the strategy that you're using. And now I understand why you may have a limitation um, under certain circumstances or why you are incapable of managing some of the, the forces that we're talking about, the internal versus external forces, because the constraints have limitations. But as it, the, the embryology allows me to understand those constraints infinitely better than I just say, okay, this muscle does this. So the reality is, is that we don't really have these individual muscles. So this is a hard one for people to grasp too. It's just that the guys that did the first autopsies and the cadaver dissections, and then they had to call stuff something, right? So they pull on a tendon and they go, oh, this is a finger flexor muscle. And then they come up with some, you know, crazy Latin term for it that we, you know, don't really understand. Um, but the embryology is the foundation of understanding the constraints. What is this part of the system capable of doing? If I, if I look at it layer by layer, then I can understand like, okay, so this, this layer would influence 
this aspect of movement and then the superficial layer might do something else and now I understand how um, when we look at movement we, we see it as a, a change in the shape of the system versus the traditional lever-based uh, appreciation because again the, the levers allow us to see things it's it's easier for us to understand things and have a conversation where whereas if I can understand the morphology now I understand the reality of how we're we're actually achieving these movements and now my strategies become infinitely more precise talk to me about uh, infrasternal angles and, and why why they're so important well they're no more important than anything else. Let's, let's make that clear. It is, but it, what, it, what it is, it, it's, it's one of the areas where the constraints of our movement system are less. They're lessened. And so, so what the, that area of the body allows me to do is to overcome a learned strategy in regards to movement because the constraints are lessened, I can compensate against something. So if I have somebody that is using a propulsive strategy when they should be able to load the system, that's one of the first places that it's easy to identify whether I'm using a compensatory strategy or not. It's, and, that, and it's that simple. Um, and, and it is a structural element of the of the of the movement system so you know it, people want to say that, that people think that you can take a wide and make them a narrow or a narrow make them a wide kind of a thing that's that's how people are, are seeing this and that's incorrect it's it's a structural element but what it lends me to understand is what are the possible compensatory strategies that they could be using because of that constraint right so if if i have um, someone who uses a propulsive strategy, then, then I need to have some place where I can load the system because I do have to accept forces. It doesn't make it optimal under most circumstances. It just means it's a strategy, right? So where can I eccentrically orient this system if I am living in a concentrically oriented strategy? So if you use a power lifter, for instance, so they have to live in a concentric strategy because the minute that they get too eccentrically oriented, they're in the bottom of a squat and they can't stand up. And so what they will end up doing is they will expand in a certain place that enhances their ability to lift heavy weights, which would be an anterior aspect of that rib cage that allows me to fill that up with air, right? I can expand that area and now I got something I can stack a heck of a lot of weight on. So that's a really useful strategy, but it's also compensatory because the rest of the body needs to be maintained in a very concentrically oriented pattern to allow me to lift heavy things. So again, it's just, it's just a, a, uh, a piece of information that allows you to determine what are the possibilities in regards to compensations because it's, the, it's one of the first places that's easy to manipulate because most other areas that will structurally adapt are less than ideal because they tend to be these the ball and socket joints if you will if i have compensatory strategy or compensatory adaptations there they're much more difficult to manage whereas the rib cage it's just it, it's the lower rib cage is cartilage 
attached to this term, so it's bendable. And that's why you want to use that to identify your compensatory strategies. Very good. How did this model evolve? So like you are where you are right now currently. Mm-hmm. How did you get to this point? So I suppose in one sense, I'm sort of asking like, who, who, who have been the biggest influences on this model? Like, cause like, I suppose like anything, I know myself that say like my current sort of thought processes when it comes to just like trying to optimize human experience here in our short time in this universe like you know i'd be able to say well you know i, I originally got into strength and conditioning i always joke actually i was like i got into strength and conditioning and then that got me into rehab and then that got me into nutrition and then that got me into functional medicine and then that got me into spirituality and that got me into child development and blah, and he just kept opening body like one door opened another door until eventually you just kind of like gets sped out the back door and you're like lying on the ground <laughs> You're like, you're like lying on the ground, like in like kind of this like fetal kind of puddle type stuff. And you're kind of confused and dazed and you kind of step up, shake yourself down. And then you turn back around and you're like, holy fuck, it's the universe. It's all connected. Like, that's my kind of <laughs> what, I was like, the, the, what I'm trying to ask you is like how, like, how have you gotten to where you are in terms of your thought processes with, with this model? Like, you know, like I'm sure there were times we were like, you know, when you were just connecting all these dots mm-hmm. here. Because I remember when we spoke, I, I was, one thing you said was like that it's only within the last few years that like it, for you, 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 like this isn't what you said, but in my mind, this is, this is what I took away was that it was kind of like you were pushing this ball almost up a hill, up a hill and it wasn't really going anywhere. And then literally within like only the last two, three, four years, it's kind of like, boom, it really took off then. And like everything seems to come like your productivity, your thinking it's like it all led to the last yeah. few, few, few years. Yeah. Do you, do you remember when I talked about Aristotle? Did you remember that part? No. Uncle Aristotle. I know who Aristotle is, but I don't remember me speaking. Yeah, about no. It's a, so 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 Aristotle. The the influence of Aristotle it was 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 an interesting one, and uh-huh. I, I I take away very small elements of, of of philosophy, but but this one really hit home, and and it came down to to the concept of that you'll hear a lot of people talk about these things. First principles. Yeah. And 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 so. Aristotle says, keep asking two questions. Ask how, and then ask why, Mm. until you reach the point where context no longer matters. And then that is the first principle. And so I've been exposed to a lot of stuff over 28 years of practice, 29 years, 28 years of practice now. Um, And and, uh, each, each, step along the way you get some some meaningful information but then when you start to ask the deeper questions of keep asking how and why how and why how and why how and why and the, and the deeper you go you realize the gaps within every system that, that you've been presented and if everybody's talking about the same system then there has to be these these principles these principle elements and, and so probably like the last three or four years is where I'm really, I've really not taken someone's word for it and sought out information on my own in regards to this process of asking how and why and to try to reach a principle. It's like, so when somebody tells you, well, this occurs because of that. And so then you start to look into the, the literature and you say, well, there's not really any support for that, but I do have an, a, a perspective of this. And then 
we live in this physical world. So now that's where the physics started to come back into the, into play where, you know, you've always been aware of the physics. You were exposed to it in undergrad and, and a little bit during, during, you know, your advanced education, but, but, Physics is the only foundational science of first principles. Biology is kind of iffy. Chemistry has has some iffiness to it. So, you know, in the hierarchy of things, it goes physics, chemistry, biology. Because, again, biology has the most gray area in it. Mm. And so then you have to fall back on, on physics. And then it's like, okay, well, what are the physical principles that I need to attend to? Okay, so now I'm talking about... Um, electromagnetism, I'm talking about gravitational forces, I'm talking about gyroscopic forces, I'm talking about pressure mechanisms and, and things along those lines and, and that's what supports our ability to move and so then that's, that becomes the, the evolution, right? That's where those questions are, so how do I get down to these, these physical principles and then that's the how and the why instead of looking at man-made constructs yeah. So, you know, you know, my, my dislike for the, the sagittal and the frontal planes, right? They don't exist. Well, they don't. And, but, but, but they're good for conversation. They, yeah. allow us to, they allow us to communicate and that's what they're for. But, but if we can recognize the fact that, okay, if nothing actually occurs in those planes, so what, what sagittal plane movement and frontal plane movement are cancellation of forces, uh, right? I have two forces acting together in the transverse plane to produce a frontal plane force or a sagittal plane force. Because if I move three degrees off the sagittal plane, what the hell is that plane? Mm-hmm. What do we call that? Right? <clears throat> but we can say that we have a visual representation of movement in a plane, and that's how we communicate. Right? <clears throat> so Rene Descartes gave us the X, Y, Z axes, and then that allows us to, to discuss things, but that doesn't mean that they really exist. Um, and then I know a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to say, well, Bill's full of BS, but that's fine. And I'm okay with that. Um, but, but again, so the man-made construct of, of this muscle does this when the reality is, is that, you know, we, we're, we're a fluid based entity and therefore we have to behave as such. Um, so I kind of lost my train of thought because I'm old now, but um, hopefully, that, hopefully, yes, exactly. Hopefully no, that gave you a little taste. No, that was great. That was great. No, so again, we were just talking about the, the genesis of your model and you were saying yeah. really, it came back from just asking, you know, keep asking how and why and how uh, and why. Yeah. Get, get, getting back to first principles. So Aristotle, how and why. It's funny because mm-hmm. why it, it, it just maybe, if, I don't know, but uh, why uh, for me personally, but I've always just been that individual who's like, why, why, why? I've always wanted to know back and I've been similar to over the last, let's say, two, three years now that realized the more we can get back to first principles, probably the closer to the truth we're, we're, we're going to get. Like, we're never going to fully, we're never going to fully get there because, again, we're, we're still in the universe of uncertainty, again, when we get down to the subatomic level and the quantum level, but it's trying right. to get as close to, 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 to truth as, as we can possibly get while we're here. So, uh, yeah, that makes sense that, you know, and I, it's, it's often what I've been saying lately to a lot of people is that, I think the more we can bring ourselves back to first principles and the more objective we can be, even though like right. there is no, there is no such thing as hundred percent objectivity because we're still the observers of it. So, I mean, there is always going to be an endless objectivity too, but I just think as, as close as we can get to that end of the spectrum. Yeah, we just keep getting better. I mean, yeah. it, it, and as you said, it, we are dealing with a massive amount of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm totally willing to admit that, that, that my model is incorrect on some level. Right. But it just, beca- but I, but I'm, I'm looking for what is useful yeah. for me on, and within the time frame that I am, I'm capable of influencing anything. 
Mm. And um, so, so yeah, so you just keep asking questions. Don't take anyone's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Don't take your word for it. Yeah. You know, examine this stuff. And, and that's where, and then you get into concepts like the, the neo-generalist concepts, right? So well, while we work in a very specific realm, I need to maintain some measure of generality in, in regards to the resources that I'm looking for. And that's, that's a, a big part of how this arose as well, is just starting to read outside of things that I typically would read. And, and again, instead of taking someone else's opinion for it, you start to bring in other influences. And that's where you know, bringing the physics back into it. Um, looking at the, at the, at the, uh, the fractals that, that arise from the human system. So you look at every cell, every cell is representative of our macro movement, yeah. right? Every cell is capable of, of managing itself. It produces its own stuff. It makes its own energy. It has its own structure. It, it moves stuff around. When you start to see that and then you say, oh, now this starts to make sense because all I'm doing is stacking layers upon layers yeah. of very simple rules. And so those simple rules then are representative of the principles that we're talking about to begin with, right? And so that's where the how and the why goes. It goes that deep. It goes down to cellular level. And then if we understand that, then it makes more sense as to why we would see the same thing over and over again because when nature finds something that works, it repeats it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love that word. I love fractals. Yeah, I love that too. Ah, that works. I'm going to keep using that. <laughs> so I know you spoke about this in our podcast, but we've never actually spoke about it. And obviously we've never spoke about it on the podcast too. The book. So yeah, yeah let's speak about the book. I know it's been out now. It's been almost 18 months, I think, since it launched. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, September yeah. 17, in around there. August, yeah. September 17. So just... The genesis of it, why you decided to do it, uh, who's it for. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed Zach's introduction. Of, and he <laughs> spoke about his, fir- his first morning being an intern with you and he was late and he goes, you had that shit smile and grin. Yeah, yeah, yeah that is a true story. That is a very true story. Yeah, so take it uh, away. So the, the, so the, the, the book um, evolved because I kept getting the same question over and over again. So, so... I would, obviously my practice is out of IFAST and we have the big gym and then my, my practice is in there. And, and so we get a lot of people that exercise or want to continue to exercise or they want to get back to exercise. So we always talk about our, our representation is we are the masters of the return to play concept, regardless of whether you're an athlete or whether you're you know, a weekend warrior or you just want to be a gym guy. And um, so people would say at discharge, they say, okay, what do I do now? And that's not a two minute conversation. That's a, it turned out to be a 20 chapter conversation. And so what I was doing was solving a problem. So now when I get the question, I say, hey, here you go. Here's a reference for you. This is what you should do now. And it's just the next step outside of, of, uh, of the rehab concept. It's like, okay, I need to move toward this, this, fitness-based or performance-based concept and how do I do that? And so that's what the, the book is for. It literally solves that problem. And then it's based on who I would consider my most common patient, who is a guy that's about 40 years old. He was an athlete at one point or very physical at one point. He's a chronic exerciser or wants to return to the chronic exercise. And then so you just write that book with with, with that guy in mind because 
What questions is he going to have? What are all the possible influences that are going to, to make the greatest impact on, on his desired outcome? And then that's the book. And, and so, like I said, now I have this reference. Instead of trying to give them a, a two-minute synopsis of do this exercise, do that exercise, do this, which is meaningless. I hate tips. I don't like hacks. I, I, I prefer to have um, the appropriate information and then slowly evolve the, the habit forming and learning processes that will get me to where I want to go. So that's what the book's for. Also too, you didn't kind of allude to it there, but elements of the book were based off a, a pretty dramatic transformation in yourself. But uh, you, you've spoken at length of that with Doug. So I'll, I'll refer people to that podcast, but uh, it's pretty, pretty impressive. So it was, and you're, uh, as I was saying in my own podcast, I've done about my experience at the intensive. I was like, Bill, he's in some shape. I was like, he's ripped. Yeah. So you're keeping, you're keeping. Well, good I, I, I couldn't go to the other extreme anymore, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it used to be to be the biggest guy in the room, and and uh, smaller, sm- smaller dogs live longer, though. There you go. There you go. Yeah, that's so. That's the concept now. So so if I can't be the 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 extreme of of the muscularity of, from my childhood, right? Um, then I had to do something else that, to represent the fact that, uh, you know, you, you need a goal that, that uh, is worth pursuing and to just be in okay physical condition isn't sufficient. Can you um, actually... It's not, it's not big driver. Could you, what I'd really like you to, to share with listeners is to the, the sort of benefits you got from that process that you didn't initially set out to benefit from. So, I mean, sort of the routine, the rituals, mm-hmm. I know you said in a conversation with Jim Laird, you were just like, you know, just like my productivity just started going through the roof. It's just like, just, just from like right. having this organization, I just sorted out my sleep. I sorted out my food. I sorted out how much activity yeah. I wanted. I got very dialed in on my recovery. So maybe yeah. even, I know I said that I'll refer you to people to, do, to Doug's podcast, but maybe do take us a bit through the journey, this transformation. So it was around what, 2015, you decided, right, I'm going to get as lean as I can. Uh, yeah. So, so the target was like my 50th birthday. Birthday. Yeah. So you did, you did, yeah. you worked at microcells at your nutrition. You brought yeah, up. Yeah. So, so Mike, Mike's obviously a genius yeah. when, that, when it comes to that. Yeah, so so take, take us through that bill. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I could probably get away with, with, you know, making some decent progress on my own, but I wanted to, to, I wanted to see how far I could take it. So, so the, the initial goal personally was just, let's see how lean I can get by my 50th birthday. And so this started right after the turn of the year. So it was like in in late January, I think Joel, Joel Jamison was here and and he did his conditioning course here at IFAST. And, and it was right after that, that I I contacted Mike and I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to get down to 5% body fat by the time I turn 50. And, and if you would help me, and of course, he's a stellar human being. And so that's what he, he was like, oh, that'd be awesome. I'd be happy to, you know, so he jumped in on that. And so he gave me a little bit of guidance and actually a lot of guidance in regards to the food process. Um, and that actually turned into his Mediterranean diet book, by the way. So, so the, the process that I use is actually in that book. Um, anyway, so we started to do this and, and um, the, the thing that I started to, to recognize was the, the things that are, are most impactful, there is a very useful strategy in regards to slowly implementing all of these habits 
and then the structure of your day arises and then you start to see where um, you've been wasting time and the organization and the predictability of the day um, provide a, a, a tremendous amount of, of uh, availability of time to accomplish a lot of things. And so my, my, my days became very, very structured and very, very predictable. And in doing so, like just writing a book. So, so, so people say, Oh, I want to write a book. And then you sit down and you try to write a book and, and then it becomes this overwhelming thing. The, the, the process of writing the book actually helped me establish all of these habits because if you don't write every day when you're trying to write a book, then, then the book falls by the wayside. You miss a day and, and right away you say, I'm not going to go back to that because it is, it is a strenuous process. But to like, execute anything that requires, as, as Cal Newport would say, a deep work, you have to have this structure. So, so the first, and you were here, so you kind of got a little taste of, of the first hour of my day is very, very specific in regards to the process of, of when I wake up and then the meditation process, um, which is a huge factor in your ability to, to manage yourself um, in regards to sticking with the process and sticking with the program. Um, so, so that became part of it. When do you, when do you eat? <clears throat> and then when, when do you write? And then, like I said, literally writing the book, everything start, started to fall into place. And then, to, to accomplish all those things, to become that ritualized, then your sleep and your wake time start to fall into place. And then your sleep quality starts to improve. And then everything just becomes part of the process. And then as it's habitualized, it requires much less energy to make decisions. And then you have much more energy left over for the stuff that really, really matters, which was at that time um, doing really good, good writing and then spending time with my wife and so, like I said, it, the, the more ritualized I became and structured, um, the whole process became, and, and people won't believe this, it just became very, very easy. It's like the decision-making capability that you have when you have full engagement of, of all of your processes from an energetic standpoint. It's very easy to stick to an eating plan. It's very easy to stick to an exercise program. Um, but, but the, like I said, the whole process of writing the book became the book. I mean, that, that's what's in the book. Awesome. Last few, and then we'll wrap it up. Why Batman? What's the obsession? Obsession? Hmm. Healthy obsession. That. I mean, just because I got stuff all over the house that, that has Batman in it. Um, so, so, what's, so the, what's the, 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 the coffee mug you have? Uh, it was that um, I love that one. That one? No, but you know, there's one where you have that. I, I'm not saying I'm Batman. All I'm saying is every time is a Batman, uh, Batman's around, I'm not around. Something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, so here, here's here's what I would say is is that okay? So, um, and this is underappreciated in in all the movies is that he is the world's greatest detective, and and so I look at what I do from a similar perspective is that somebody comes to me with with a, a a problem that requires a solution and then I need to be the best possible detective to allow them to achieve the desired goal. So it is my responsibility to have as broad an understanding of what is possible and then to identify what those things are. And then from that, we, we arrive at a solution. And so there's no greater detective. Um, but then there's also the, the physical aspect of it. There's no greater um, 
um, representation of this, this broad scope of generalized capabilities. So he is adaptable to all these situations. So again, it's, it, but in, in all essence though, if you want to go all the way back to when I was a kid, um, Adam West was my first Batman and I just thought the mask was kind of cool. So, you know, it, 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 we all go through this, I think where you're looking for, for idols and, and, but, but, what Batman represents now is this, this ultimate detective. Um, and I always have this conversation with Eric Otter is like, if we could take Batman and combine him with Dr. House from the, the TV show, yeah. TV show house, that would be the ideal situation. So you have the best diagnostician in the world. You have the greatest detective in the world. And now you've got, got, if you combine them, you've got this perfect practitioner that would have, all this this knowledge and understanding to select the best interventions. I'm not gonna lie, the amount of procrastination I did from watching House was just immense. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first couple of seasons after that, it, it sort of went off the deep end. But but uh, uh, I still thought the later seasons were immense. Uh, but just yeah, it's it's a, it absolutely fantastic that that yeah, season. They were, they were brilliant. They were brilliant. Yeah, and then Hugh, Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie was was perfect. perfect. Such a good actor. Such yeah. a good actor. What's next, Bill? Uh, honestly, the, 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 the next thing is, is to make the intensive five better than the intensive four. Nice. Um, that's, that's the first thing on the agenda. And then it's just a matter of, of where do we go next? How do we deepen this? How, how, do, we, how do we make it better? That, that's all I'm worried about right now. I, I know you, you get asked this uh, an awful lot from external sources do you ever plan on like doing a tour in terms of like you know a bit of education tour like might you know you might set aside a year and do american europe and ireland uk you know as in because no doubt that the demand is out there you've been probably emailed a few times say would you ever come over to europe or do so yeah. is it, is it no. something in the pipeline i hate to travel yeah no you're like myself yeah i don't like big travel myself no just wondering. yeah um I like my house and I like my purple room um, to, to take the intensive somewhere else. I think it loses something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not that it, it couldn't be done. Um, but it, it, you know, um, I, I try not to be financially driven. Um, I, I want control over who is in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, I, I always want to maintain that, that qualitative aspect. Yeah. So um, I've had I've had some groups that say, "Hey, come in. Can you do this intensive here?" And it's like it, it wouldn't be the intensive right. anymore yeah, if, yeah. if if I just let you guys in without knowing who you are and and what your your interest and and I always ask you know the the group that comes in. It's like, what do you want to do? Yeah, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah, um, as, as so, you said, it's. I fully respect that. You know, it's, you know, you want that, you want to maintain that quality. Like that's the key thing. Right. right. And, and it's not that I, I, and I'll never say never kind of a thing. It's just not on my agenda right now. It's not, it's not something that I have interest in. Um, and like I said, it's not that I wouldn't ever consider it. It's just not something that, that fires me up. I, I get excited about bringing the group to Indy. Mm. You know, there's not much to do most, most of the time here. Um, so it does provide an element of focus and, and if I was to do it somewhere else, there would be distractions and, and, and 
I don't know if I'm a control freak or not, but, but it would, it would lose its element of control. So, and, and you think about it, it's like, how many decisions did you have to make when you came here? None. Exactly. I try to take care. I, I, I want the transaction taken off the table. I don't want you to have to worry about where you're going to be, what you're going to do, what you're going to eat and all that kind of stuff. I take care of all that. So you don't have to worry about that because the, there's plenty of struggle in the purple room and you don't need to worry about that kind of stuff while you're here. And, and I would lose that elsewhere. Just for, for people like me who love their food, the food the entire week I was there was absolutely phenomenal. Even like the, the lunch we ordered in from that place. What's the name of the place? Oh, Parabrand? Yeah, that was lovely. And then uh, what, the name of the Mexican restaurant where the service is awful, but the salsa is amazing. <laughs> Riviera Maya, by the Maya. way. This, so we've had four successful meals there since. Um, the, the service was spectacular. So. Oh, was it? Well, the service yeah. when I was there was fine, but that was the, the running joke that the service was. Yeah. So we, we actually have a specific waitress that we now have access to. Ah, so very good. She understands us fully now and, and uh, is all over it. So, so, yeah. So the next intensive group will be well taken care of. What are you currently researching right now? Like, what's, what's intriguing you? Um, I'm not really researching anything. I'm, it's more about going back through some resources um, and, and just re-familiarizing myself. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Things. Um, I just started the book Scale by Jeffrey West, which is really cool. So it's looking at, at, at how things scale and... and and again, we're going back into fractals and things and complexity, <clears throat> but it's looking at it across any number of systems, from financial systems to, to biological organisms and such, and looking at the similarities and, and how scale alters things, but, but also allows things to remain consistent. So again, we go back to simple rules repeated, like the, these higher levels of complexity. We look at these large organisms from anything from an ant to an elephant and and you'll see that that the same rules are applying across the board it's just that because of the the layers of of uh, that are laid upon one another with these simple rules that's where the complexity arises so the deep the, the more complex an organism appears to be it's still the same rules mm, and so. and that, that and then we go back to first principles etc cetera, etc cetera. so that stuff's really interesting but I'm not, I'm not as deep into, um, like recently, I mean, I'm back into the pelvis actually a little bit. I think there's a lot more to be expressed there. And, and from an understanding standpoint as to how some things arise because it is sort of the bottom of everything that has to catch all of these forces. And I think that uh, a little bit better understanding of that has made a big change in our exercise selection at IFAS. Um, and in, term, in, really, in, um, in terms of resources, have you been looking at just multiple different resources around the pelvis? So like yeah. Diane, Diane Lee's work and different people's work? And so, yeah, Diane, Diane Lee has some, some, some good resources, but, but um, look at a broad spectrum, um, just picking anything and then picking the analogy that I do have. Right. So again, this is learning based concepts. Like I have this picture in my head as to how this stuff's supposed to work yeah. and then putting another layer on top of that based on another piece of information, where does it fit in? So even going back and looking at some of the Don Tigney stuff in regards to SI joints and, and, and the sacral 
um, sacral movement associated with anything from from you know walking up the stairs to taking a breath and then putting all that together and then seeing how it how it's organized to achieve a certain outcome. So from a visual standpoint, if I see a pelvis moving a certain way in the gym, I now have a, a model as to why that's happening. And then if I need to enhance that, I can drive it further in that direction. Or if I need to counteract that, I have a strategy to do mm. so as well. So again, the, without, that was kind of a vague um, explanation, but no, that's uh, great. But that, that's where my head's been at. Uh, sorry, one completely just random question. And we are I'm just going to ask you this one more. Um, your braces. So you, cause people, yeah. this is one people to see this. Why did you decide to, yeah, look at them very straight. Why did you decide to, to get the work done on your teeth? Well, so I've always been a lousy sleeper. <clears throat> and, um, and I have what, or I had what's called a mid-face deficiency. So, so I had allergies. It sounds terrible. I know, doesn't it? You have a mid-face uh, deficiency. Oh, I thank you, sir. And, and so, so um, what that means is that uh, when, when, I had, when I was a kid, I had allergies. So I had to breathe through my mouth a lot. And so the tongue drops down into the mandible instead of staying up against the, the maxilla and the roof of your mouth. And so then what happens is you don't get the, the, the what would be considered the normal amount of growth of the maxilla forward. And, and so technically, the way that my mouth was oriented before, I should have had what's called a class three occlusion, which is an underbite type of occlusion. But then my my I was able to get my top teeth to come over the top. And so that created the, the gapping and stuff, but it was still representative of the mid-face deficiency, which means that the amount of space that I had to breathe with was limited. And so I went to the, I, I did the uh, septoplasty and turbinate reduction in an attempt to get the, the, the breathing under control. And it did make a difference, but it wasn't sufficient. And so um, thankfully I have the world's greatest dentist that went searching for solutions. And so then I, I was put in what's called a fixed growth guidance appliance, which actually stimulates bone growth in the maxilla again. So, so that allows the maxilla to move forward. And then it's just a matter of bringing the, the teeth forward, actually. So it's a different kind of bracing system that redirects the forces. Most, most braces push the teeth back and together, and these are actually putting my teeth from back to front. And so then it brings all the teeth back together. And, and again, I'm just sticking my face up to the camera for you. There you go. And you can see that the, and, and we're not even trying to close the gaps yet. This is just normal movement of the teeth associated with the, with the bracing system. So, and my sleep is much better. So like last night, Bill got two hours and 43 minutes of REM sleep, which is off the charts for me because I used to be like the 36 minute guy, you know, of REM sleep. And so, yeah, it's been pretty cool. The last two adjustments that I've had on my braces have been very impactful on my sleep. So this is, it's been it's been great. So I, I've never slept this well before. Yeah, great stuff. And as a fellow, uh, as a fellow person who's obsessed with sleep, I can uh, I can fully resonate with with uh, with with your report there of that REM sleep report. That's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So finally, um, interesting actually to hear the answer to this. If you had to take five people to dinner, dead or alive? Oh, man. Okay, I'm ready. He, he's like, he's ready. like, fuck, I forgot. Who, who, I, knew, I, I forgot this question was going to come because I've I, I listened to your podcast before. Uh, who, who would you take, dead or alive now? 
Federal uh, and and spouses don't count like so like Lisa's already there and oh she's already there yeah, so we can have cowboy beans yes <laughs> I've tried numerous times to to remake that recipe yeah good luck good luck with that yeah, yeah it's still not on here no. No, she was a masterpiece oh, uh, five people okay so here we go uh, Abraham Lincoln oh Abraham Lincoln yeah for sure um, I got I got to get on give me your why too what why Abe um. Take one of the worst case scenarios for a presidency and then and then deliver an outcome under the again worst possible circumstances. People were against him. Um, he worked he worked in a situation where he's he literally took advantage of the people that disliked him yeah. and, and got them to to produce what he needed them to do. And that that's I mean that, that what a gift um, from a from a human standpoint to get people to do those things and and uh have you and, uh, have you read uh, team arrivals uh that's it, yeah it's it's like the the, the big, big thick one, one yeah the dorns yeah. uh doris kern goodwin's book yes yes an absolute genius he was like yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like, oh, yeah. yeah. so um uh, ben franklin we we talked about ben franklin before we came on and uh when I read his biography, those it just made me feel small and insignificant and unproductive. Yeah. Um, so I have to get him in the room. Um, Einstein is is like another one that uh, that I would have to have sex with three. Um, let me think. Steve Martin. Oh yeah. Steve Martin. Yeah. Um, yeah, and again, just a, a, just a brilliant human in regards to. Um, his ability to construct what he did as a, as a comedian and, and to understand his evolution and how he got there. And then when he was done, he was done. Like he knew that, that he had done everything that he could in, in a specific realm, but he's a very, very intelligent human being. Um, that's, that, I got one left, huh? Just mm-hmm. one. Um, it, it, fictional characters. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, then you got to go with Doctor House. Oh. You got to get Doctor House in your. I was going to see. I was going to see Britney Spears, but <laughs> but I think that. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think that uh, Doctor House would probably be a little bit more interesting. He would have. Like, the, he would be like he would like the, the, the be the critical edge that you need to to conversation. Mm-hmm. I think everybody else would be really really nice human beings, and then he would have like the gruff. Um, constantly questioning kind of a thing um to call bs on people so l- l- we got lincoln franklin uh, um albert einstein, einstein uh steve martin and house it's not bad yeah. not bad yeah i like it all right bill i mean anything else to add there just before you do before we wrap up where can people find out more about you and i'm supposed there's if there's anyone listening to this who this has been their first exposure to the intensive they'll be chomping at the bit so where can they find out more about you and the intensive uh bill hartman pt.com and it'll be all all linked up in the show notes and ifast yeah. as well yeah, and if they want to get on the if they want to get on the the mailing list for the the um intensive they can do so it's it's everywhere throughout the the blogs and such yeah. Yeah. um you can sign up for that if you want to um, and then IFAST uh, as well. So we get people from all over the country and all over the world that come into the into the gym that are dealing with some issues that they can't get resolved elsewhere. So, so IFAST online is another way 
to, to gain an accent. Um, and also IFAST University? IFASU, absolutely. Lots of stuff on there. Um, so again, from an educational perspective, um, everything that we do, we, we try to uh, put into a, a, a systematic approach. So we have courses now. So the things are being organized into, into um, courses for videos and, and projects and such and put together. And so now you can have access to those. So, uh, final thing for a wrap up here. I, I actually never knew this guy, right? And he sent me this Facebook message. Uh, Greg uh, Sorrells, is that his name? Sorrells? Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll refresh your memory here. And see, I'm rarely on Facebook, so this message didn't go to, you know the way you get a message on Facebook? It went to like some other inbox where you have to accept it first. So I didn't see it for ages. So he sent me this message on the 1st of March. And it was Robbie. Drove to see Bill Hartman yesterday for an evaluation. The first question I asked him was, why haven't you been in Robbie's podcast yet? And he goes, he looked over his computer and said, did he tell you to say that? <laughs> so it was, just, it was just so funny. And I was like, that's hilarious. Because I only saw it literally like a few days ago when we booked this. And I was like, would you, would you believe that we're, we're, we'll be doing one soon? So, Bill, uh, absolute pleasure. Obviously, I'll, I'll say goodbye to offline. But for all the listeners right now, as I've been saying to everyone who's been listening to the last few episodes, you're spoiled rotten people, spoiled little brats with all this great free information. But uh, for now, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.